Thank you, worship team. Praise the Lord. Thank you guys for that. Uh, again, I'm noticing as they're singing how that song uh, continues to tie into the section of scripture that we're in. Uh, so I want to invite you again. I, I open our service today by imploring and hoping that you have your Bible with you, uh, whether it be on a tablet, a phone, or um, a book form like I have with me. So if you would, most of you know, you've already either typed out or printed out your handout or you have looked on the website in one form or another uh, and you know where we're headed or you've been with us. So if you would join me, Matthew chapter number 9. Matthew 9, today we're going to focus on four verses. And I will say at the beginning, I'm not going to reread last week's text, but this is actually the same scene, the same setting uh, that, that we touched on last week and spent that time. So, again, without rereading that, let me reset the scene, okay? Jesus called a man named Levi, or Matthew, who was a tax collector to be his disciple, his follower. Now, we know from last week that tax collectors were universally hated and they were notoriously dishonest. And why in the world would Jesus do this? Well, he did, and he changed his life, and he became one of the twelve that in chapter 10 will be called an apostle. But kind of how some people think, boy, if you bring in the dog, you're going to bring in the fleas, or if you give an inch, they'll take a mile, and if you bring in a tax collector as one of your close disciples, then what's going to happen? Well, sure enough, Matthew throws a feast. And he invites many more tax collectors and some just outright well-known sinners. And then Jesus and his disciples are eating with them. And we know that this group, the Pharisees, who are kind of dogging the trail of Jesus, ask his disciples a very biting question. It's rhetorical. They don't really want an answer. They want to know, why is your master eating with tax collectors and sinners? He ought to know better is the implication. Jesus overhears and he says... Again, not going to reread on the screen, but you'll hear his answer in verse 12 of chapter 9. His answer, do you want to know why I'm eating with them? He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then he says, a little bit later, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And what he's implying is the reason I'm eating with these people is they know they are sinners. They know they're spiritually sick. They're coming to me to help them spiritually. I didn't come to call the righteous, which you Pharisees think you are righteous. You think you don't need me. They know they're sinners, and so that's why I'm giving myself to them. So on the heels of that, that was the Pharisees questioning the Lord. Now we come to verse 14. We're going to say a new group is also going to question, and this time they directly question the Lord, not just his disciples. As we look at verse 14 to 17, I'll confess to you, uh, halfway through the week, I wasn't looking forward to preaching this passage at all because it just continued to get seemingly more and more difficult and potential of controversy and all of those things. Not really clear yet by the end of the week, uh, but as the week went along, uh, some clarity came to me. I hope it's the right position on some things. I, I think it is. Uh, we're going to offer that to you today. Would you look at verse 14? Again, the scene, Matthew's house. Feast for these tax collectors and sinners that Jesus is using as an evangelistic push to win them, to have them put their faith in him as Savior. Verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him. 
Let's not let what they do be a negative commentary on the man John. John's a great man. John's a very humble man. Sometimes great people can't help what their followers do. Nevertheless, verse 14, the then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we, they're asking Jesus, why do we and the Pharisees? Again, these guys are not apologists for the Pharisees, but they are acknowledging we're in one thing that's alike with the Pharisees. We, the disciples of John and the Pharisees, why do we fast? We fast. But your disciples do not fast. So they're puzzled by this. It's really bothering them. And in answer to their question, Jesus said to them, he uses a parabolic statement. In fact, we're going to have three parabolic statements this morning. The first one is an answer to their question about fasting. And here's this question to them. Can the wedding guests mourn? Now, by the way, notice right there, and we'll come back to this later. It'll actually be one of your notes. Did you see what Jesus just did? They're asking about fasting, and then Jesus says, he's going to use an analogy where it's pretty clear he's going to be the bridegroom, and he's calling his disciples the wedding guests. Question is about fasting, and he says, can the wedding guests mourn? So we know already what Jesus is connecting fasting to. That tells us a lot. Here's this question again. You want to know why my guys don't fast? So here's my question. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? So here comes the bridegroom. There's a wedding set. The bridegroom comes to town, and he gets his groomsmen, and they're going to get the bride, and they're going to go to the groom's house. And in their day, there's going to be a week-long festival. Jesus' question is, can the guests of the wedding mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? And the idea, is that proper? Is that right? And then, very important, Jesus says, the days will come. Hey, you're asking about my guys fasting? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Hey, the day's going to come, the bridegroom will be taken away. I, it doesn't say in the text, but I wonder if, if Jesus' disciples are paying attention here, if it clicked with them, and we don't have any record that later on they're like, hey, you know, what you said back there, obviously you're the bridegroom, we're the, we're the wedding guests. What did you mean when the bridegroom's going to be taken away? But we can imagine how Jesus would have answered that. He says the days will come, they will fast. But is it really right for them to fast while the bridegroom is with them? Verse 16. And this is the really hard part of today's text. Jesus says, no one, so you got to really use your mind here, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth. That means like new cloth. It's never been wet. No one, you don't do this. In their day especially, they would know not to do this. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Notice, you don't do that. Why? For the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Would you please notice the end of verse 16? A worse tear would be made. That tells me something. There's a tear in the old garment. So here it is again. There's an old garment. It has a tear in it. Jesus says, here's what you don't do. You don't get some unshrunk cloth and just kind of put it up. We've got a tear in this cloth. We need to cover that up so it doesn't keep snagging. and doesn't get worse and worse. You don't take unshrunk cloth and sew it in to the old garment. Because he's saying if you do, give it a little time. The unshrunk cloth is going to take its own form. And when it does, it will pull away from the old garment. And you're going to have a worse situation than you had to begin with. Verse 17. 
Neither is, and I'm going to offer to you, this is my opinion here, I think verse 17 is just another way, another parable to make the same point of verse 16. I think 16, 17 is the same point Jesus is making. Neither is, so you don't do that, neither is new wine, meaning like grape juice that is just starting its fermentation process and becoming wine. Well, here's what you don't do in their day. Neither is new wine put into old wine skins. You don't do that. You don't put new wine that hasn't really just beginning its fermentation process into old wine skins. Why? Jesus says, if it is, the skins burst. He's talking about the old skins. They'll burst, and then, so they, they burst, and secondly, the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. There's two negative things happen. The wine is spilled, and those skins are destroyed. So what should you do? Jesus says, but new wine is put into fresh wine skins. And so both are preserved. Most of you would be like, I have no idea what you're about to say, but just for that small percentage that are already, maybe you've studied this before, can I make something real clear? The end of verse 17 where it says, and so both are preserved. That does not mean, I challenge us to read that if we studied it over and over. That is not saying, Jesus' goal is not saying we have to preserve the old wineskins and the new wineskins. No, notice the point. He's saying you put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. What are the both? It's the new wine and the new wineskins. The goal is not about preserving these old wineskins. And you're already thinking, why is he so excited about old wineskins and new wineskins? Well, they mean something. All right, we're going to offer, hopefully, uh, what those mean. All right, so here's what I want to do. You, if you have your handout or whatever you're doing there, you got your Bible. Uh, I, we need to do three things, and each point is going to be a little longer than the one before it. Uh, number one, I want us to look at this. A, I'm going to just call it a review about fasting. Number one, a review about fasting. Why am I calling it a review, and why am I going to be a little more brief on this? Uh, for two main reasons, I'll just tell you straight up. I'm, I don't want to undermine my point here. Fasting is not the main point. Fasting is not the main thing that is going on. Uh, though I read my ESV Bible here, and above these four verses, there's a header. says a question about fasting. Uh, that is true, but it becomes a springboard issue. The text is not mainly just about, hey, let's preach on fasting again. The second reason I'm calling this a review about fasting is because we preached a whole sermon on fasting back, I think, at the end of December, about four and a half months ago, when we were in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 18. Jesus says how you do and how you don't fast. And we gave that a whole sermon, and if you didn't see it, then you can go back and find that in our website in the sermon archive. So take advantage of that if you need to. I'm not going to re-preach that. So all I'm going to do is just reiterate a few things about fasting, mainly four points about biblical fasting. Number one, biblical fasting is purposely abstaining from food. All right, biblical fasting is purposely abstaining from food. I, I mention that because we can take the idea of fasting in the Bible, we can apply it to other things. You say, well, I, I'm putting this out of my life for a period of time and that out of my life. Those are fine applications. I'm in favor of that as, as the Lord leads and as it is needed. But to be biblical fasting, just to be clear, we're talking about purposely abstaining from food. Second thing I want to notice is if we read the Old Testament, what we would find is that the Old Testament 
commanded Jews to fast. But, here's the caveat, they were commanded to fast only one day a year. That's very interesting. Now, that comes into play this morning. Only one day a year are the Jews told you are commanded to afflict yourselves. And most everyone agrees that means they wouldn't eat food. What day was that? That was the high day of atonement where an innocent, spotless, clean animal, ceremonially clean animal would have its bloodshed. And the high priest, this is the one day of the year, anyone would go behind the curtain to the holiest of holies and he would sprinkle the blood of that animal on the Ark of the Covenant, on the lid called the mercy seat. And that had to do with the national forgiveness of sins. So this was a perpetual event in September around that time. And it always reminded people of their sin, a constant reminder every year of their sin, and we fast on that day. Third thing I want you to notice The New Testament, all right? So the New Testament never commands Christians to fast. That's very important. Old Testament, Jews commanded to fast one day. The New Testament, Christians are never commanded to fast. You won't find it. You won't find a verse that says we have to. Now, to balance that, Jesus very clearly assumes that his people will fast. His whole tone in Matthew 6, and you see it again in verse 15, he alludes, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then the wedding guests who represent us as the followers of Christ, then they will fast. So he's he's implying, but there is never a specific command. All right, the fourth thing, and this one I'll give you a few little thoughts to go with it. The fourth, fourth thing about biblical fasting, and this is important, please hear it. So again, Jesus assumes that we as the followers of Christ will fast, abstain from food. By the way, fasting could be one meal, it could be a day, two days, a week. These are all represented in the Bible all the way up to 40 days in the Bible. So again, one day intentionally, purposely laying aside food. But biblical fasting always has a spiritual purpose. Everybody listen to me. Don't fast out of a habit. That's not the biblical model. You don't just say, well, it's such and such a day, and that's the day that I fast. Fast. What if someone said, why are you fasting? Because it's such and such a day. Don't fast out of a habit. Have a Bible reason. You say, well, what in the world are some Bible reasons? Again, let's review. I didn't have room on your handout, so I'm just going to fire them off, all right? These are biblical reasons, spiritual reasons. Number one, no particular order. To accompany confession of sin and repentance of sin. That's in Daniel chapter 9 and other places. Again, there's sorrow and repentance of sin. A second could be any other kind of sorrow. Fasting expresses sorrow of heart. David lost a child, his first child with Bathsheba because of his sin. The Lord allowed that child to die. And David fasted as a result of the sorrow of that situation. Sometimes our hearts are heavy. Sometimes that has to do with sin. Sometimes it's heavy with another situation. And we just need the Lord to know that, Lord, my heart is heavy. Okay, that's a biblical reason. A third, you have a huge decision coming up, and you want to be sure that you're getting the Lord's guidance on that situation, and so you may fast to accompany your prayers. Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 14, we find the early church sending out missionaries, and they fast. Those missionaries start churches, and then they appoint elders. As they're appointing elders, there's a huge decision. They fast. So that's a reason. Lord, we need some real wisdom. A fourth reason. 
is, God, we just need some special assistance from you. Maybe even beyond wisdom, we need your help. I'm reminded of Esther, the queen, uh, this Jewish queen who's getting ready to go before the non-Jewish king. And she's going to entreat him to, in essence, call off or somehow undo this decree that has been put out to destroy the Jews. And so what does she do before she goes to the king? She asks all the Jews around the world to have a day of fasting that God would assist her as she goes in. And we know that the Lord answered their prayers. A fifth reason to fast is to just sometimes it's good to just keep our appetites, physical, mental, emotional, whatever it may be. Our appetites can try to take over our life. Listen, somebody out there right now, you have really been struggling with a specific sin, and that sin is coming from some urge in your flesh or your fleshly, your old fleshly nature, and it's kind of been whipping you recently. Maybe you need to be like Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 who says, I just keep my body in subjection. And one of the ways he did that is by not always giving his body what it wants. And so one of the things that may help you have victory in your life is says, you know, you know what? Lord, I'm going to abstain from food and show my body. You don't always get what you want. You're going to stay in subjection. The spirit matters more. And then, of course, a sixth reason is... Fasting seems to be a God-ordained way to really intensify our prayers. We get hungry, we pray, and those hunger pains intensify. When we get hungry, we remember, oh, the reason I'm hungry is because I'm not eating, and the reason I'm not eating is for this spiritual thing, and that drives you to the Lord. It intensifies, heightens our pursuit and our prayers uh, to the Lord. That is number one. Number two, now, they were asking how about their fasting? What's going on with the fact we fast, they don't? Number two, I think we're now getting to the heart of verses 14 and 15 uh, with this second point. I'm going to offer this, what I believe is the main idea here, and it's four words. Beware. Beware of judgmental comparisons. Ladies and gentlemen, what the Lord's trying to tell us today, beware of judgmental comparisons. Be careful. I also want to propose, so I'm reading verse 14. The disciples of John came saying to him, why do, we, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? I believe if we were to compare this passage with the previous one from last week where the Pharisees had a question, why, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? I believe John's disciples' question is much more sincere in its nature. And I think Jesus' answer, his gracious tone in verse 15 reflects that they came with a better tone than the Pharisees. He gives a nicer, more gentle answer. He puts it in a parabolic statement. But he still, listen, though their question's more sincere, it still needs to be dealt with and there still needs to be correction. So I've read from the ESV today, and I don't know the other translations, but guys, there are some translations that would either have a wording like this or would impress upon you this idea. So I want to kind of read a different way of what their question is really saying. I want you to taste it. Here's how the question really goes. John's disciples asked this question. We fast a lot. That's what it means. We fast much and the Pharisees. We and the Pharisees fast much. We and the Pharisees fast a lot. But they, pointing to Jesus' disciples... They don't fast. In fact, it's this, Jesus, 
We need your help. We're, we're puzzled by something. We fast a lot. They don't fast at all. If I look at them, they're feasting. They're not just not fasting, they're feasting. Now, guys, I want to propose that by doing this question, they have now done two things that are wrong when we compare this with Matthew 6 and what Jesus taught about fasting in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 16 to 18, Matthew 6. Did you already catch it? Do you know the two things they did wrong? Do you remember? Do you see it? Do you feel it? Here they come. We, we fast a lot. They don't fast at all. Okay, do you see the two things? Let's write them down. Number one, your first bullet point, pretty clear. They messed up because they publicly announced their fasting. Jesus taught, hey, keep your fast, but keep that between you and the Lord. Keep it private. That's not something you announce. Why did you just publicly announce to everybody that can hear how not only that you fast, but that you fast often? Why did you just do that? That's a no-no. But guys, even worse than that was the second thing they did. They revealed that they had been tracking the lack of fasting by Jesus' disciples. Well, we've been following and we've been watching and we've been noting. And, and I, Guys, I, I can feel, I wonder if the Lord's counting is like, you didn't seriously just say that, did you? When you just told me that you're fasting and you just told all of us in a bragging t- kind of way apparently, okay, maybe you're seriously puzzled by this and it's a, you know, a, a sincere, I'm going to give you a sincere answer. But have you been tracking, my guys? It is believed, and I have no reason not to think so, that the devout Jews of that day fasted twice a week. I think I remember reading, not recently at another time, they would fast on Monday and Thursday. So can I make a proposal to you? Perhaps this is a Monday or a Thursday, and they're seeing Jesus' disciples feasting inside with the tax collectors and sinners. Hey, their problem is not who Jesus is eating with it's that his disciples like we're not even gonna touch you we don't know why you're not fast how come they're not fasting we don't have a problem with who you're eating with it's that you just don't seem to be fasting and that's really bugging them so notice they've been tracking and maybe if it is a monday or thursday they should be fasting today if they were devout like us so guys i need to make some points uh, and this will be one of the more Preachy times, not in my tone. Uh, Today is a very teachy message as we get to 16 and 17. Lots of teaching, not as much preaching. But for the next few minutes, we have an opportunity to really apply this to us. And here, let's begin with this. We, hear me, we must be careful about comparing ourselves to other people with our spiritual behavior. Listen, Be careful about comparing your spiritual behavior with other people's spiritual behavior and their spiritual disciplines. Listen to me. It it is rarely a good idea. I would encourage you, you think, well, what, what if I need to do it? Compare yourselves with people who have greater spiritual discipline in their life. Don't go around comparing yourself with people that have lesser. Why? It's going to lead to judgmentalism. It's going to lead to pride. It's just not really a good idea. Don't go around comparing yourself with other people, your spiritual activity with theirs. But especially hear what I'm about to say. Don't do this when the Bible is silent about the details of the degree of that spiritual activity or the frequency of it. Don't do that. Here, that's what they're doing. They're picking an area where they're strong, and they're noticing an area where those guys appear to be weak, 
But the problem is the Bible has not given the parameters, the specific details about fasting. And they are having a problem with it. And it's really grating on them. So much so they can't let it go any longer. They have to ask. I propose to you that in Jesus' answer, he is not denying that fasting should be part of someone's life. His point is that his disciples have not broken a command of God by not fasting as much as you do or by not fasting at all outside of that one day of atonement in the month of September. Guys, they're not breaking any law, but they're not fasting. And so Jesus comes to their defense. I want you to write something down. This, I believe, is one of the more, impo- more important notes on your handout. If you don't write it down, I want you to hear it and taste it. It's very important. We tend to view, we, you and I, we tend to view our habits as the standard others should abide by. I'm just telling you we do it. We do it in our, in our minds. We do it subconsciously. We may do it consciously. We do it with our words. We do it with our unspoken words. We do it in our attitudes. Sometimes it's a look. Sometimes you don't, it's not even in the front of the mind, it's in the back of the mind. But I'm telling you, if you have any religiosity at all to your life, you have to fight this because it is our tendency to view our habits as the standard that others should live by. Because you believe in your habits, that's why they're your habits. You think those are acceptable for the most part, and we want to project those on other people. We could probably spend the rest of the message just fleshing out that and just make verse 14 and 15 its own message. I don't have time to do that, but I want to touch a few. I have some folks who are watching right now, and I'm very thankful for you. But can I just say, some of you, every year, you read the whole Bible all the way through. You read your Bible all the way through. And in a normal year, 365 days, that means you average 3.26 chapters a day. Can I say something to you? Praise the Lord. As long as you are really reading that and letting the Bible speak to you, you are going to grow spiritually. But what you can't do is assume that everybody else needs to be reading their Bible all the way through every year. Why, Jeff? Because there is no command in the Bible. We are taught from the Scripture to be reading the Bible and study the Bible and meditate on it. There is no command. Someone else may be reading through one of the Testaments or two or three books. Their goal may be, I want to study these two or three books this year. You don't have the right to expect that and project that and feel superior if you, you say, year after year, I've been doing this for decades. Praise the Lord. There's no command to do that. Listen, some of you, you pray. You may pray 30 minutes a day. 30 minutes a day. That's 148th of your day. Every day is given to prayer. Can I tell you this? Praise the Lord for that. If you're sincere and genuine in talking with the Lord, you're going to grow spiritually. You're going to benefit from that. But you cannot compare that and put that expectation on everyone. Everyone needs to pray 30 minutes a day. You can't do that. Let me go further. I know. I don't know all the specifics, but obviously... Many of you who are watching right now, you don't just give a tithe to the Lord of your finances. And I believe tithing is a principle of Scripture that predates the law. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. I believe that is a principle throughout the Bible. But some of you don't just do that. 
You regularly give offerings on top of that. Again, I would say, praise the Lord. Your life is no doubt the better for it. And if you're giving genuinely, cheerfully, then you're being blessed. I don't think it's an accident that those who do that seem to have the means to keep doing that. And often those who don't give, they seem to be struggling the most. And in their mind, they're saying, I can't afford. Okay, but here's my point. If you give offerings over and above, you don't have the right to see yourself as superior and judgmental toward those who don't give above their tithing to the Lord. Be thankful you're able to do that. Another, maybe you get dressed up for church and you wear suits and ties and dress shirts and dresses. Can I say something? Hey, if that floats your boat, that's awesome. Uh, I think for over three and a half years now, I think every time I've ever preached here, I wear some kind of sport coat. And you say, why do you do that? I don't know. I'm, I've been an old man from the time I was 12. I really have. And that's just the way I am. I've given up the tie for the most part, so that's a big step for me. But listen, there is nothing any more spiritual about this white shirt than there is about a T-shirt. All right? There's nothing more spiritual about these blue pants than a pair of denim blue jeans. Okay, so if you you say, I like to get dressed up, and I just, okay, fabulous. You can't expect that of other people. I'll hit another one. There are some folks, you don't take vacations, right? You just don't take vacations. Uh, Maybe it doesn't fit in your, your, your budget, or maybe you use that money to do something else or to allow something else. I remember being in Bible college and heard a pastor talk about how many years, and it was decades, since he had taken a vacation. And I'm going to tell you, just the way that struck me and I think other preacher boys at Bible college was that that's the expected norm. Listen, you may not take vacations. Somebody else out there may take one every year, or they may take two every year, or three every year. I kind of see in the, New, in the Old Testament that the Jews kind of took at least three weeks of vacation around their feast, and that's what it was designed to do. And so listen, you go on, and if that no, having no vacations works for you, then that's fine. You just cannot Project that as an expectation. This is the standard. Everybody needs to be. They're being wasteful. Okay, careful. You don't have that right. Be careful about judgmental comparisons. I wasn't going to talk on this because I believe this actually is one of the more important parts of my message today. This whole not comparing in a judgmental way, and I'm going to read most of what I've handwritten on the back, but I want you to catch it. This even applies to things like individual practice step, practical steps. Let me say it again. This applies to our individual practical steps dealing with this coronavirus. So I'm not started a coronavirus series, and I don't go out of my way, but I think this actually fits here. Be careful about making comparisons and seeing your habits as the standard. For clarification... I am not talking about whether to obey government regulations. I'm I'm not putting a group together. Here's a group that obeys government regulations, and here's a group that disobeys government regulations. What I'm talking about is all the space within obeying government regulations. Because I think within that space, I'm talking about people who are watching me right now. There are groups represented that are watching me right now. Here's one group. Be careful that you're not in this group. Some, I'm telling you, this is real. Listen, this matters. Check our hearts. Some judge others. 
They may do it in their mind. They may even say it out loud. They may even be so brazen as to take to texting or to social media or Facebook posting. Why would they judge? Some will judge others for not taking the extra precautions above and beyond government regulations like they're doing. That's happening. Government calls for this, but they're doing that and this. And in their mind, they're getting judgmental toward anybody that's not doing the and this like them. Be careful. What you believe in and what you're practicing That's fine. You cannot project or have inward hard feelings toward those who don't do as you do. Second group, others openly mock or inwardly question and belittle those who are so overly sensitive. Hey, 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 I'm within, I'm within the guidelines of the government regulations. (laughs) Those are some wacko people, right? Are you seriously? You're do- and then you got to be careful. You don't know their susceptibility. You don't know their physical conditions. You don't know their family. You don't know their upbringing. You don't know their psychological condition. You don't know all of these things. We don't have the right to inwardly like belittle and that's silly. And do you seriously think that's ridiculous? Be careful. Do you see these two sides? Now, here's a third group. Third group. They go back and forth between each of the other two groups. You say, go back and forth? Oh, yeah. It depends on what they're reading lately. One week they're reading this and like they're over here and that's silly. And then the next week they're reading like, oh, oh, oh. And then they like, and then they start wanting to condemn those. And really, they just go, it's all depending on who I'm reading, who I'm trusting. Now, right now, I just threw out three groups, right? There may be someone saying, yeah, but hold on, Jeff. Here's the difference. I've got data. Can I promise you something? There are articles and videos. I'm telling you, they're out there. Both sides have data and charts and projections and expectations and effects to this and what's going to happen to that and all the ramifications of that. And just be careful that you don't become condemning and judgmental literally within the church. Don't do that. Live by a clean conscience. Live wisely. What I want to encourage you guys is please remember the words of man and the supposed truths of mankind are changing every day. Do you remember three or four months ago? You don't need to do that. And then two months ago, now they're saying you need to do that. And then they're coming back, well, we don't really know. Well, yes, it is. And you'll find people within the expert field saying... You need to do this if you're considerate of other people. And then there are others in the same field saying, it ain't really doing anything. And the psychologists are saying, but at least it makes us feel like we're doing Okay, listen, don't judge each other. Live with a clean conscience. And let's realize, thankfully, God's truth, now listen, His truth may progress in its revelation, but it never fundamentally changes in its truth. God's truth doesn't change. We don't know what to believe. We're always just at the mercy of the latest findings. And so we need to give grace and mercy. And your disciples, they're not fasting. Hang on. Where's the command? I don't have a, can't find it. It's not the day of atonement. All right, then chill. It's okay. How does Christ answer this? Let's wrap this point up quickly and move on to our third one. Three things Jesus does if you're taking notes. 
he presents himself as a bridegroom, and he presents, it's very clear, this one's easy, he's clearly the bridegroom, and his disciples are the wedding guests, and so that's one of the, he's going to give this parable about a wedding. The second thing Jesus does, I've already alluded to it earlier, did you catch it? It it, it gives us information about fasting. Jesus, when asked about fasting, he connects fasting and mourning. He connects fasting and mourning. Those go together. The third thing that he does is that he alludes. I think for the first time, he's giving an allusion to his upcoming death, even though no one really got it at this point. He's talking about, in verse 15, the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. He's talking about his death and his resurrection and his eventual ascension. And he's saying, and then they will fast. Right now, it's not commanded. Right now, it's not expected. So without going too deeply in this particular parable, let me just point out the following. You with me? Here we go. Fasting is a great way to express sorrow and mourning, be it over sin or some other condition. It is a great way. But listen to me. Weddings are a horrible way to express sorrow. Don't use a wedding to express sorrow. William Barclay describes a Jewish wedding, and multiple people pointed out, these are like a week long, but Barclay would talk about how even poor Jewish people, and again, not a direct quote here, but he describes Jewish weddings as occasions of plenty. These are occasions of plenty that might come only once in a lifetime, even poor people. Like, hey, as far as we know, We think this will be the only time our son's getting married. This is the only time our daughter is going to get married. In other words, this is a time of extravagance. This is a time of joy where you go above and beyond. We're going to to blow out on this one. We've been saving, but we've been saving for a long time, and we want it to be. Now, we may have to limit. The poor people may have to limit how many people can come, but, man, we want it to be great. Warren Wiersbe adds the following. Taste this. He tells us that, that the bride and the groom at these weddings for a week were, t- were treated like a king and a queen. The bridegroom, man, he's like a king. And, the, and, the, and the, the, the bride, she's like a queen that week. And so Wiersbe adds the following quote. Catch it. He says, the guests and members of the bridal party were expected to enjoy themselves. You expe- hey, you've been invited? Enjoy themselves. He says, and thus... By enjoying themselves, add to the joy of the bride and groom. Enjoy yourself. They will have more joy if they see all the people that are here enjoying themselves. He says, to complete his quote, not to show joy was an insult to the family giving the wedding feast. You don't do this in weddings. We got everybody together, everybody's coming. You know that we've called you together, it's going to be a week long. All right, great. What's going to happen? Well, there's not going to be any music. No music. There will be no dancing. No dancing. And there will be no food. And there will be no wine. What's it going to be? We will give you minimal water. What? There will be minimal water enough to stay alive. Why are we doing this? Because she's getting ready to get shackled to him, and he's going to be shackled to her, and the old ball and chain is getting ready to get connected. And that's what we do at weddings. These are very mournful occasions. You don't do that. No, you have a blowout. Man, don't ruin. Can I just say this on a practical level? If you're in a sourpuss mood one day and you're heading to a wedding, just don't go. They don't need to see that. And 
you were the bride three months ago or six months ago, and you're a little sad that you're not the bride. Okay, stay away. Or at least put the smile on and go and leave as soon as you can. Don't ruin their day. Don't ruin their week. And that's what Jesus is saying. Can I word it this way? You may be on a low-carb diet before. You may be on a low-calorie diet before. You may do it after. But if you ever go to Disney World and you stay on site and you buy the deluxe meal plan, never done that but if you do the deluxe meal plan you don't go to disney world and buy the deluxe meal plan to be on a low carb low calorie diet you get off of that thing and you enjoy that week and then you get right back on it as soon as you leave but for that occasion here's what jesus is saying you guys are have a problem with my disciples that they're not fasting do you not understand what your leader john the baptist preaches that the, the kingdom of god is at hand listen here's the point that jesus is making 2,000 years the Jews have been waiting for the kingdom and the kingdom is literally among them. It is being offered in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Literally what he's saying is that God, there is one God and he has a son and God who fills the universe, his son is on earth. Is that the time to really be fasting? Is that the time for mourning? Absolutely not. It would be inappropriate to fast and mourn while the bridegroom is among you. Do that when I'm gone. So number two, beware of judgmental comparisons. They were guilty of it. We don't have that right. And then number three, Jesus' message, number three, Jesus' message was radically new. And I think this is the main point of the message. I think all the discussion of the fasting, Jesus is using that as a, something to project from and get to this point. Now, before I get into this point, can I confess um, three things? This is going to be teachy and not preachy. And I know some of you are like, ah, I don't really like those teachy points. Would you, would you ask the Lord, Lord, help me to concentrate. I want to know my Bible. I want to know the whole Bible. I want to kind of feel this thing, whole, whole thing come together. Would you teach me? Lord, I, I need some good teaching today. I've already been challenged that maybe I need to start putting some fasting in my life, but I need to have a spiritual reason. And I've been challenged that I've got to stop judging other people if they don't live just exactly the way that I do or we do. Okay, I've been challenged. Now, Lord, would you teach me? The second thing that makes this kind of difficult is that what is new to them is not that new if you know your Bible. And if you've heard messages in our day, uh, if you've been hearing Bible messages, what was new then is not as new. It's 2,000 years old now. But here's the third thing, and here's, here's the real struggle that I have, all right? I'm confessing to you. Uh, Jesus gives these two parables, and he doesn't tell us the meaning. And so, I'll just tell you straight up. I normally read seven sources after I read the text. I read the text double-digit times. Keep my little tally marks, and I make my comments, and I start my document where I think the Lord is leading me, and okay, it seems to be saying that. Well, I not only read my seven other sources, but I read three or four more this time. I pulled off a couple of books that were specifically to be helpful on parables, and you know what I found? Not a lot of agreement on people among this, and I think it is specifically because Jesus does not give us the details. He doesn't tell us what is this old garment represent? What does this these old wineskins? What do the new wineskins? What's the new wine? Um, what's the new patch? He doesn't tell us, and so we're kind of left. So, guys, I struggled this week because my mind went a certain direction, and others 
didn't interpret it that way, and it kind of weakened my confidence for a little while. Um, and others would say and allude to the stance that I'm going to offer to you, uh, but nobody really settled on it as specifically as I'm going to offer it to you today. I might regret this later. Uh, some really good theologian or one of my pastor friends may hear this and go, yeah, I need to talk to you about that, uh, that one sermon you did there, Matthew. But can I tell you, in, I'm, in, I'm in a good conscience this morning. I think we're going to give you the right interpretation. I really, I believe it's the right one. I don't know why everybody else wasn't stronger on it than that. I think we got it today. Sometimes we, anyway, I might regret it. That's the sense. Here we go. I'm going to say it confidently. <laughs> I might be wrong, but we're not in doubt. All right. Here we go. R.C. Sproul, let's, let's kind of learn what's, what's the figure here. What's going on? Verse 16, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth it's unshrunk. It hasn't gotten wet yet. It's new. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Then he says, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. You just don't do that. Why? If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. R.C. Sproul writes the following. This is just a practical. Let's get the kind of what's, what's the terminology here. Sproul writes the following. Jump in. You ready? Focus. Here we go. He says, consider what would happen if an old garment, picture an old garment. It's old. I mean, it's, it's had its day. It's, it's shrunk into its form. I mean, it's, it's old. It's showing age. Consider what would happen if an old garment were patched with a new piece of cloth. Okay, oh, they got a rip. We're going to put this new piece, and we're going to sew all the way around, put the new piece over or inside of the tear. Consider what would happen if an old garment were patched with a piece of new cloth. He says, when the repaired garment, that section, was washed, the new cloth would shrink for the first time, tearing away from the already shrunken fabric of the garment. Thus, the rip in the garment would be even worse. It's not a rip. It's like the whole thing is tore away now. Man, you just made it worse. Implication? Don't do that. Next, he writes, an old wineskin. Now, understand, wineskins, what does that mean? Literally, animals. Like, they would take that hide and cut all the fat. I mean, they would clean it, clean it, clean it, so that there's no oils and, and, and animal taste in the wine. But they would get it down to the hide, so they'd have the hide on one side, and you have the fur on the other, and they would use that. And it would be pliable and flexible and expandable. And they would literally make, turn that into something. You could make wineskins, sew it up, Make these wineskins pour wine in. But he writes, an old wineskin had already been stretched to its capacity. So if new wine were put into it, meaning like grape juice that has the yeast put in, and now it's starting its fermentation, you understand that it's putting off gases. And so it's expanding. He writes, if new wine is put into it, these old wineskins, it would not have sufficient elasticity to withstand the fermentation process and would burst. And he writes, both the wine and the wine skin would be ruined, unquote. So what does this mean? Let me first of all give you what, I want to be fair. Some who've taught on this, this seemed to be one of the prevailing ideas of what this means. So I want to offer this one first. What does this mean, Jeff? Some, you with me? Got to concentrate. Some have proposed that Jesus' words here in this, these two parables, what they mean is that we people 
we need to be open-minded on things. Like, we need to really be open-minded. Like, give things a chance. And if it calls for it, after being open-minded, it becomes clear that, you know what, we need to have a, a more open course of action or a new course of action as a result of truly being open-minded than have the courage to take the new course of action. And they'd say, that's the main idea here. Be open to new ideas. Don't just assume that the old way and the old way of thinking, the old way of doing is automatically the right way. What if there is a new way that is a better way? You'll never know if you're not at least open to the potential. And they'd say, that's the, that's the main idea. Uh, can I say this? Companies spend a lot of time in marketing and a lot of effort in their product to develop brand loyalty. I just said the word brand. That's one of Brandon Chambers' favorite words. So these companies want to develop brand loyalty. So here's what I could do. There are some viewers out there. Well, I have a few in my mind. Uh, there's a, I've got two guys in our church uh, in mind when I say this. One is a Chevy guy. He's a brand loyalist to Chevys. And then there's another one I know is loyal to Fords. He's a Ford guy. But then there's other people. They're loyal to Toyota. Over here's a BMW person. Over there's a Honda person. If you saw my family, literally all four of our cars are four different makes. So it isn't a big deal in my world. But I know that there are folks that like, hey, that's, that's, and they go way back. Probably dad or, and whatever. And I know I work on these things. And this one is the better one. Can I just say this? There are situations like that where it is truly hard for someone to open their mind to the possibility that another automaker may put out something as good as don't say it okay I won't say it all right there's probably more brand loyalty here could it be now I have an iPhone made by Apple Macintosh computer okay do you know what I find people that are Apple people and Macintosh people they like, struggle. Jeff, you're about, don't blaspheme, Jeff. Hang on. Could it be? Could it be possible? Obviously, never to this day. Could it be possible in 35 years from now that another company were to that one time get lucky and make a product that is as good as or better? No, you don't. Okay. There's these Bible translations. And we can come to a conclusion that just, just the one, just the one, is, it's the only or Here's where a lot of folks went with this point. Ways of doing things in the church. Yeah, we don't do it that way. And churches split. Why? Because some say, we have never done it. We never will. Okay. Are we going to patch this? No. You just, you just go start something new. And some have said that's the interpretation of this. Jeff, what do you think? Guys, I think there's some points in there I don't think that's the interpretation I think that's fine application we do need to be open-minded what what are we do we really want to die on that hill on that brand product and I understand brand loyalty and that's great and I'm not picking on any of those those are all great products all right what do I think is happening let's focus here for a little bit I believe that Jesus's main point is not listen to me it's not just be open-minded his main point is the following Something radically new and different has come with him. He's, it's not just be open to any new idea. 
He is something radical and new. It's about him. And guys, I want to propose to you that this whole thing on fasting is the springboard point that he's going to use. Do you remember what I said earlier? Now hang with me. One one of the things we learned is that the Old Testament commanded the Jews to fast, but one day a year, only one day a year. It was the Day of Atonement. It reminded them of their sin all the time. Then you come to the New Testament. We have no command to fast. I have to ask myself. They're commanded to. We're never commanded to. Why not? Could I propose that the reason we're not commanded to fast in the New Testament is not that long after Jesus teaches this in Matthew chapter 9. He is going to die on a cross. And he's going to give his life, his body, his blood to pay, listen to this, a sufficient price for all sin, for its penalty, to have it removed once and for all time removed. And I think that's the reason we're not told to fast in the New Testament as a command. Yes, it's part of our life, but remember what we're not doing. They fasted every year as an automatic perpetual reminder of their sin. We don't do that. If you're taking notes, write this down. Since our atonement has been fully accomplished in Christ's death on the cross, we now commemorate that we remember that can I even use the word we celebrate that how with a supper not a fast we celebrate with a quote supper the Lord's supper in other words Jesus is saying here I want you to remember Good Friday and I want you to remember Easter and I want you to remember often what I've done for you but don't let it just drive you to misery and sorrow because Christianity is not a woeful Religion, it is a joyful religion. When we remember the death of the Lord, what we're doing is we're saying, He was afflicted so that we don't have to afflict ourselves anymore. When we think of the death of Christ on the cross, yes, we remember our sin, but our sin is not the focus of our attention. His loving, tremendous, sacrificial offering, now that is what we're going to focus on. And so, yeah, we don't, we don't have a commanded fast to remember the death of the Lord We have a love feast and a supper. And so now I look at these two verses. And what do these words mean? Jesus says no one puts. So here's what we have. We have old garments. We have old wineskins. We have new wineskins. We have unshrunk cloth. And we have this new wine. What do these things represent? If you're taking notes, I want to offer the following. This is, again, my interpretation um, of this parable. Let me, number one, offer, and this kind of gets to the heart of it. I believe the old garment and the old wineskins both point to the same thing. I believe they represent Judaism. The Judaism in Jesus' day. I think they represent, and that's key, Judaism in Jesus' day. You say, well, what's this tear in the garment? I believe the tear in the old garment So in other words, this old garment, these old wineskins, if I could say it this way, Judaism had already expanded. It already had reached its capacity. And now it has a tear in this garment. What is this tear? The tear in the old garment represents what the Judaism in Jesus' day had caused. Why? Because they were teaching you and I, or the people of their day, that righteousness can be attained. How? By keeping the law and by offering animal sacrifices. And it got so just rote and repeated and habitual that it's like 
Hey, do you really think you can keep the law? But they were teaching people, you've got to keep the law to be righteous. And when you mess up there, then go offer these sacrifices. But they were offering sacrifices without even having their heart attached to it. And there was this tear in Judaism. So before I give you the next one, this is very important what I'm about to say. Jesus is not coming on the scene teaching a new way of salvation. Judaism of Christ, they had gotten away from the way that Abraham and Moses were saved. You guys know how Abraham... You say, I guess they were saved by offering sacrifices. No. Abraham is saved by the grace of God to which he responded with faith. It's the exact same way you and I are saved today. This is not a new way of being saved. It's Christ having a new message and where that message centers now. So what's this unshrunk cloth and what's these new wineskins? I'm going to propose that that represents the church. The church would be this unshrunk cloth, this new fabric, this new wineskin that's going to have this new wine. Put, okay, so Jeff, if, if the church, if we were to go down this model and, and go with you there, then what is the new wine itself? Can I propose that the new wine is the New Testament gospel of salvation in the, the specific death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the new wine. This is the new message. And out of it is going to come, to, to, to have that new message, you're going to have to pour it into the new wine skins, into the church. You're not going to take it and pour it into the old wine skins of Judaism because Judaism has a huge tear. Judaism has expanded. Judaism has reached its capacity. And it is time for something new to have the new wine. Write this down if you would. Judaism in the day of the Lord Jesus, mainly, you say, Jeff, I don't want to hear this. Guys, you need to understand this. Judaism in Jesus' day mainly focused on four things. Mainly focused on four things. We could say others, but these are the four main ones, and you, you should know this. Number one, any particular order here, the law of Moses. That was a huge focus. So you have the law of Moses. It has three parts. It has these moral aspects, like the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Don't do that. It is wrong. It's morally wrong. You need to do that because God loves that. It also had a ceremonial part to it where all these sacrifices and offerings and hand washings and, and again, just ways, things that had to do with the temple and such. So that's the law. But also it had this civil aspect. That's how they ran their country. And so all of that is contained. Mainly, they focused on the, the ceremonial part of the law and the moral part of the law. That was a big part of Judaism. Secondly, they put a large focus on the temple of Jerusalem with its priests. You got the Levitical priests and the Aaronic priesthood and the tribe of Levi, right? They would assist the Aaronic priesthood, and the Aaronic priesthood come out of the tribe of Levi. So you have the temple. That's a huge focus. You have all those sacrifices. That's a big focus of Judaism. Number three, you have the land of Israel, literally the physical land of Israel, always important to Judaism, as it should be. I can't say this definitively, but I would dare say that more blood has been shed over the land of Israel in some form, in some connection, than any other place in the history of the world. And it'll, it will apply still in the future. But the fourth thing that, that Judaism emphasized and focused on was the tradition of the elders. And so for centuries in Christ's day, the elders, the Jewish people, had taken the laws of God and they kept drawing those out in more and more specific details that people needed to follow. And, and we know that the Pharisees and others were teaching, you need to keep the tradition of the elders. So, here we go. Here comes Christ with a new message and what should be our thought process? Can I offer the following? 
Here we go. The law of Moses. They focused on, listen, that's from God. The tabernacle that preceded the temple, prescribed by God. So the tabernacle and the priesthood and their garb and all the different sacrifices prescribed by God. David gets this idea that that's a tent. We need something more permanent. He wants to build God a temple. His son actually does it. God blesses and favors the temple. So it has the blessing of God on it. The law from God, the tabernacle and the temple prescribed and blessed by God. What about the land? All right, can I propose to you, and I know some theologians are going to say, Jeff, you can't have it both ways. You, some stuff you say you believe, you can't believe that and believe this. Guys, I believe there are binding literal promises that are to the nation of Israel, the future nation of Israel, that has to do with physical, actual land, and those will be carried out, and it is important. But here comes Christ. And what he's saying to us this week is he's bringing a new, radically different way of viewing these four things. You say, Jeff, a while ago you said the laws from God, the tabernacle and the temple, and the promises about the land, but you left one off. Yeah, let's start right there. Here's what Jesus taught. Number one, Jesus discards the elder's tradition. He goes out of his way all the time. Yeah, what they're teaching you, you don't have to keep that. It may be a fine thing. They may be in the ballpark. It is not binding. It is not authoritative. Secondly, what we learn is this one's important. Jesus says something and teaches something. He predicted, this is radically new. Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple and the cessation of all of its sacrifices. This is a major thing. We're in Matthew 9, if you would. This is the only other place I'm going to have you turn this morning. Would you look at Matthew 24? Flip over. This is the week of the Passion, literally just a couple of days before he would be put on trial. Jesus is leaving the temple. Look at Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. And the other gospels tell us they're pointing out how nice they were and they're evaluating all these temple buildings. But he answered them. You see all these, do you not? Listen to what Jesus says. Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus predicts a literal, I know there was an earlier time where Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it again, talking about his body. Here he very clearly says, you see, oh, we're talking about these buildings over here? Those are going to be destroyed and not one stone will be left. You say, Jeff, isn't there like this wailing wall, this western wall? It was not part of the temple buildings. It was part of the temple complex. Guys, this was carried out so specifically, they literally don't know exactly where the temple, the exact spot where the temple buildings were. The Romans came in and literally took every stone off of the other. Total destruction. Jesus predicted it was coming. This is a core of Judaism. The temple is big. The law is big. The land is important. The elders' teaching. Jesus says the elders' teaching is not important. That temple will be destroyed. What about the law? Jesus proclaims, not his words. Here's the idea. Trying to keep the moral or even the ceremonial law of Moses and the law of God can never save anyone. Christ's message and that of his apostles following him is if you try to go to heaven and earn your way to heaven by keeping the laws of God, you will actually go to hell doing that. You cannot keep the laws of God. An animal dying in your place does not pay for your sin. Jesus is teaching this. So what about the land? What does Jesus say there? Write this down. Jesus calls for his gospel to go to the whole world. 
The whole world. Ladies and gentlemen, do you understand how radically different and brand new Jesus' message? Oh, tradition of the elders, you don't have to keep it. It's not authoritative. The temple that you love so much and these sacrifices of care, it's going to stop. It's going to be destroyed. The law serves a purpose, but it doesn't serve that purpose. You can never keep it and earn your way to heaven. Even if you offer those sacrifices, they are not what's actually saving you. And oh, what about the land? Take my message to the uttermost part of the earth and tell everyone. One of the things that I want us to understand today is that the Old Testament was given to point us to Christ. It's constantly, all of its parts are pointing us in its typology, pointing us to Christ. Christ is the one who fulfills the types, this offering and that offering and that offering, and and, and over and over and over, each of these parts, it's always pointing us to Christ. Here's one of the saddest things in the history of the world. For 2,000 years, Judaism has had no use for Jesus Christ. He's had no use for that. And what I'm about to say, some would say, Jeff, you're heretical, or that's horrible, that sounds harsh. Guys, you need to understand this. What Jesus is alluding to in Matthew chapter 9, verses 16 and 17, is the laying aside of Judaism, a Judaism that rejects him as the Messiah. If you reject him as the Messiah, you reject him as the Son of God, which they do. I'm talking about on a whole. There are individual Jews who have put their faith in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're rare. Paul was one. But the national stance has been, we do not accept him. And so Jesus, in verses 16 and 17, is alluding to the putting away of a Judaism that does not accept him as the Son of God, as the Savior, as the Messiah. Can I word it this way? Jesus didn't come to patch up Judaism. Oh, no. He has something brand new. Now, if you would, I want to come down the home stretch. Look at verse 17. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. So let me say it again. Neither, so you don't put that, that as a patch. You don't put the new as a patch on the old. Everybody got that? And you don't put the new wine in the old wineskins. Neither. You don't do that. Can I tell you how someone may be thinking? But hold on, Jeff. Can't we keep both? I mean... You're talking about Jesus setting aside the Judaism of his day that rejected him. But there's a lot of, we we like a lot of that ceremony. Can't can't we keep both? Or can I word it this way? Can't some drink from the old wineskins and some drink from the new wineskins? I mean, hey, frankly, Jeff, old wine, I don't drink. But I've read that old wine is better than the new wine. I've read that too, and that's what they say. But I've heard of one exception. There was this wedding at Cana of Galilee, and Jesus turned water into brand new wine. And one thing they learned is that his new wine is greater than even the old wine. Jesus didn't come to patch up Judaism. Can we have both? No. Listen carefully. God, listen. Study your New Testament, what you'll find. And church, and church history, you'll find. God gave the Jews one generation, about 40 years, to stop their sacrifices and to stop their allegiance. He gave them about four Christian Jews. Can I put it this way? The book of Hebrews, toward the end of the New Testament, as that starts spreading out, the message there was, hey, Jewish Christians, 
I'm going to be patient with you because for 1,500 years you've been doing this, offering these sacrifices. And this is a major time of transition, so we're not just going to rip the Band-Aid and expect you to understand. But listen, I'm going to give you one generation, and then God allowed the Romans to come in and destroy the temple, and there are no more sacrifices today. There are no more. Why did God do it that way? Because he doesn't want any more animal, animal sacrifices. He had the Roman army destroy the temple completely, and the animal sacrifices have ceased. Your last note, and I want to encourage you. You're going to probably have to write sideways. There was no room on your handout, but I just I wanted to get this put in there. Hold it to the end, Brandon. Don't put it up yet. I don't think it's up. Have you ever read the Old Testament? There's burnt offerings and grain offerings and peace offerings and sin offerings and guilt offerings and trespass offerings, wave offerings. There's offerings of lambs and rams and goats and bulls. And there's offerings of wine and oil and bread and grain. It's like, and money. It's like, do you understand all of those offerings were always pointing us ahead to Christ? Listen, all those offerings find their fulfillment and their typology getting us ready and identifying and so we can appreciate all the different things that the offering of Christ on the cross would do. Listen, God established that to be pointing to Christ. Here's what God did not do. God has not ordained the continuation of those offerings to point back to Christ. That's important. They pointed forward to Christ. God has said, I don't want them to continue. To look, but, but wouldn't they be valuable that could point our attention back to what Jesus has done? No, that's not what he wants. Because he knows without Jesus himself on earth, we would just lock into these animal sacrifices and we would start ascribing to them too much value instead of allowing them. So here's what he did. They're going to point ahead, but they don't point back to Christ. The old wineskins of Judaism, you don't put the new wine of the gospel in there because the old wineskins of Judaism can't contain the new gospel. It's going to take some new wineskins. It's going to take... A church that's made up of Jew and Gentile putting our full faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's my finish today. You're like, Jeff, that's really not my favorite kind of passage. I don't really care about parables, especially ones like that. Or maybe you were sitting there watching and like, bless his heart, he totally missed the whole point. Maybe uh, that's what I think it is about. And if that's the case, I leave you with these ramifications. Here's the ramifications. You ready? Can I say, understand these. Know them. Appreciate what I'm about to tell you. And then actually tell God thank you for this. Here's the ramifications. We don't kill animals to atone for our sins today. I've never done that. I've never seen it done in person. I've seen a Muslim offering of a cow. It's grotesque. I hated watching it as they took a big sword and sawed its jugular as several people held it down. It was gross. That was normal life. I've never done, we don't do that. Number two, here's the ramifications. We don't confess our sins to an earthly priest and ask him to help us get forgiveness. Hey, can I borrow you for a second? Yeah, man, can I help you? Yeah, I got my animal here. I actually, here's what I did. Ooh, you did. Yeah, let me help you with that. All right. Come over here. Put your hands right here. All right, I'm going to do this. This is, this is happening because of what you did. and, and I'm, We don't have to do that. Yeah, listen, can you get me some forgiveness? We don't confess to, to any man. In essence, what Hebrews and the New Testament and the message of Christ is to the, the Levites and the Aaronic priesthood is, hey, guys, thanks for what you've been doing the last 1,500 years. We don't need you anymore. 
We have one high priest, and we get to go to God directly ourselves. What's the ramifications? Listen, there is no temple in Jerusalem today. You say, I just need a God encounter. Hey, I'd love to go to Jerusalem. I'd love to go to Israel. I hear it's great. Christians go over there. It's it's awesome. You don't have to go over there to have a God encounter. You don't have to direct and fix your body facing Jerusalem to have a God encounter. Here's what the New Testament teaches us. Your body, if you're a Christian, literally this body right here, this is the temple of God. This is the temple of God. This is where the special presence of God is, and he never leaves. It's an ever-abiding presence of God. You say, Jeff, okay. We don't kill animals. We don't confess to a man. We don't have to go to a building. What about the law? I'm almost done. This one is very important. So, Jeff, do we just discard? No, 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 no. Listen. The law is still, the Old Testament, the law of Moses, it is valuable. How? It teaches us about the character of God, what he likes and doesn't like. Here's a a major blessing from the law. It shows our nature how sinful we are. That's useful. You find somebody, I'm not a sinner, take them through the Ten Commandments and ask them if they've ever broken that internally. If they have any honesty about them, they will confess that even they are a sinner. The law gets us lost. The law tells us about the nature of our holy God. But we do not try to keep the law, the moral law of God, or a ceremonial law of God in order to try to attain righteousness and holiness. If we'll study our Bibles, guys, here's what we learn. The law of God has been written on our very hearts. It is no longer a to-do list and a checklist. It's literally something that we study the law of God and we find out what God likes and doesn't like, but it's not a like, like a have-to God takes that, but he also puts us in new situations that the Old Testament hasn't addressed specifically. And the Holy Spirit of God writes the law of God, the law of love. And all of a sudden, it's not a have to. I want to do that. Furthermore, I'm able to do this. How? As I live in communion and obedience and walking with and not against the Holy Spirit, he helps me actually fulfill what I never could do on my own. He gets the full credit, Romans 8, 1 through 4. And then lastly, what about the land? Well, here's the ramifications. Christ's people, the church, we're just not jealous about a land. We're not jealous about an inheritance. In fact, we gladly invite other people. Get in on the inheritance. But aren't you afraid? They won't, no, no, no. <laughs> There's so much to this. Guys, listen to me. In fact... Our enjoyment and the amount of our inheritance only grows the more we tell other people and the more we invite other people in it. We're not possessive and jealous of us for and no more. It's like, no, you got to get saved. you got to take my Savior as your Savior. All your sins are forgiven in Christ if you'll receive him by faith. It's awesome. You need to get in on it. No, we're not protective. We're imploring. Would you bow your heads this morning?